media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. Well, of course, I did not start coughing until about 10 minutes before the service. So uh, I apologize if I have to cough through the service just a little bit today. Open your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 2. If you were with us a couple weeks ago, you know that we are kind of going through Nehemiah right now as we contemplate a a building expansion, a ministry expansion. And uh, one of the things that I hope that you got from uh, two weeks ago is that Nehemiah uh, is insight and godly wisdom uh, as we approach these things in our lives, that it's not just about bricks and sticks, but that it's very much about seeing God do the miraculous and that he leads us spiritually. And we began to examine a couple weeks ago the foundations of the setting of Nehemiah in chapter 1. Nehemiah asked his family about the current status uh, of his homeland. Nehemiah is a, an exile away from Judah, and uh, he's been away for a long time. And the Jewish people have been scattered into different regions. And some have started coming back in the last couple generations uh, under the leadership of God. And so Nehemiah asked a typical question that you would ask. If all of a sudden family members came and, and you've been away from home for a while, hey, how's everything at home? And the report that they gave just really wasn't all that good. It was one of those that bring a lot of sorrow to Nehemiah. And look what he says in Nehemiah chapter 1. Verse 3, or that what they said as they replied to that question that Nehemiah had. How's things at home? Nehemiah 1.3. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had surveyed the ex- survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. And, and Nehemiah hears this. And it's not just, oh, hey, there's a lot of trouble there. He hears that, and I imagine that even though he cannot see it physically, they didn't have, you know, their phone to pop out and say, here's some pictures of it. I can imagine that he began to, to, in his mind, at least see a picture like this. Now, remember that walls in the Old Testament were there for the security of a city. They were part of the status of the city. If you had big walls like Jericho, then, you know, you had a lot of pride. You felt very protected. So they served a practical purpose, but there was also this kind of significant purpose of just how you felt about the walls of your city. So you can only imagine if you put that kind of weight onto how you feel about the walls of your city, that if you hear about the walls of your city being torn down and broken and in shambles, that it would bring despair to your heart. And it brought despair to Nehemiah's heart. He's broken. And by the news that, that he hears, and, and he turns to God in prayer, and look in verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. <coughs> Nehemiah gets this immediate response, and it's not just one of personal sorrow. It's not just one of personal brokenness, but, but he kind of gets this whole, um, you know, he, he goes to God, and he's broken spiritually. Because he knows that the Jewish people were the chosen people, that they were the called out people. And, and, and it's not just that he has a pride in that, but he knows that there's a spiritual significance. That God had this intention for them, and, and that because of their rebellion, because of their sin, they didn't live up to that. Well, when was the last time you had godly sorrow? 21 questions this morning, okay? <laughs> Remember. 
Not sorrow, but godly sorrow, spiritual sorrow. Something that a grown man, probably a very capable man here, says he wept. I mean, there's a lot of men in here right now who go, well, he's one of those kind of guys. You know, those guys that, like Pastor Bobby, just cries all the time. I, I promise you, I was raised in a house. Men don't cry. And as God has moved in my heart, I found out one thing, that sometimes men do cry. But hopefully it's a spiritual sorrow that we have. Hopefully it's a, it's a heaviness that we have, and it's nothing to be ashamed of. And, and when we see Nehemiah here, I think he's a man's man. And, and yet he hears this word, and it's not just that he's going, oh, my goodness, you know, I'm so disappointed. I own land there, and my investments, you know, go down. No, this spiritual heaviness, and it brings this spiritual sorrow to his heart. This is that he wept. He mourned for days, even moving into a time of fasting and praying for the God of heaven. And last time that when we met a couple of weeks ago, following verse 4, we, we began to look into Nehemiah's prayer there in chapter 1, and it was filled really with two things, confession, but also hope. Confession on the truth about mankind, both Nehemiah, the, the Jewish people, and all of humanity, and he confesses the sinfulness. He said, even though you chose us, even though you've blessed us in every spiritual way, God, we've rebelled against you. And, and, and not only am I a sinner, but he said, but I live amongst the sinful people. And in this confession, then he goes to the faithfulness of God. And he begins to talk about how God has been faithful. Now, God has been there for rebellious people. And how he's a merciful God and a graceful God. God calls him, makes this impression upon him that perhaps he should leave where he goes and, and go back and, and perhaps lead a rebuilding of the walls. There's only one problem with that. Does Nehemiah already have a job? Yeah, he, he's the cupbearer of the king. We said that was a very trusted position. He just didn't go out there and put an ad in the paper. Need it, cupbearer, because it was trusted. Why? Because before the king and royalty would take a drink of something, I worked that in so I wouldn't cough, uh, that, you know, if, if Nehemiah fell over dad, it's like the king says, okay, take that away and get me some new. You know, it was a very trusted position. You know, it was one of those that you, you were the last step before the king would eat or ingest something that could possibly kill him. And so this is a really important thing. There's a, a great, amazing trust that he has in the, the cupbearer. And, and so now Nehemiah has this dilemma in his heart in his life. I, I feel a God's call. I feel this spiritual sorrow, but also a spiritual calling to go back home. And, and yet I have a job and I'm really kind of still exiled here. It's not that I have the freedom just to leave at my own whim. I can't just kind of put in a time of release and, and hope that I can go. No, I feel kind of torn between two things. My responsibilities here, but a calling of God. And so what does he do about it? He prays. He continues to do his job. And just as he, you know, as, as he's doing this job, the, the king notices something about Nehemiah. Look in chapter 2 as we move forward. Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 2. So he feels this calling to go back home to Jerusalem to help rebuild the walls. He's got a job that he's already doing. 
He's kind of torn. Okay, how's this going to work out, God? He's praying. He's fasting for wisdom and discernment about this. And look what happens. Nehemiah 2.2. And the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing that you're not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. There I was very much afraid. Don't, don't miss that last part. Then I was very much afraid. Why is he afraid? Another question. Because the king noticed something. And just your understanding of kings from ancient times, are they pretty powerful? Could they be moody? And if they just want to get rid of you, I mean, literally get rid of you, swimming with the fishes kind of get rid of you, that they can? Yeah. And so the king notices, it's not that Nehemiah said anything, but he said, I notice that you're hard, uh, that you're sad, and, and that it's actually a sadness of the heart. You're not just feeling bad. It's not just, you know, you're feeling like you might have, you know, a cold or something, but actually this is an internal sadness. Have you ever known somebody, you know them well enough, you've been around them enough, to well or said, maybe even a coworker, and you come in and say, man, they're just not the same today. Well, we know that's immediately about some people in our family because we're just going, okay, you know, they haven't said anything, but I just know that they're acting a little bit sad. There's a heaviness there. That's what the king notices about Nehemiah. And instead of Nehemiah going, you know, man, I'm relieved, he said, I am actually very much afraid. Why? Because the king has some tremendous power. I don't want sad people around me, perhaps was going through Nehemiah's mind. What happens? Look at verse 3. Nehemiah tells the king why he is so sad. And I said to the king, let the king live forever. Always a good thing to say when you work for the king and he points out something about what's going on. It's always good to start with, long let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? He tells the truth. That's why I'm sad. Here's why there's a sadness that's down in deep in my heart. And this is why you notice that I hope I'm still doing my job. I hope that I've done everything like that I need to do to be the, the proper cupbearer. But you, you ask why is there a, a deep down internal sadness? And, and I'll tell you the truth. Is this not how somebody would feel if they're separated from their homeland and, and they hear the story of that their homeland is in shambles? And look how the king responds. Knowing really very little about the king, we don't know how he's going to respond. And then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. Now let us observe two things here. Was this the first time that Nehemiah prayed? No. Do you think Nehemiah left the room and prayed for hours when it says, and uh, I prayed to the God of heaven. Do you think that he said, time out, I'll see you tomorrow, I'll go back? Or do you think it was rather a quick prayer? Probably a quick prayer. We, we don't have any indication that he said, well, you asked me and, and I, I told you the truth about it. And I started to pray because the question from the king was actually somewhat of a positive one. What is it that you're requesting? He, he didn't, he wasn't offended. And he say, well, just get that out of your mind. You're here to do your job. You have one job to do. Do this job. 
Now what does the king do? There, there seems to be an openness in the king's heart and mind <coughs> Excuse me, to be helpful to Nehemiah and to this situation. What are you requesting? And yet we see how tense Nehemiah feels because he said that he began to pray to the God of heaven. I believe this is one of the principles of prayer that I want to speak to, that I believe that the word speaks to this morning. Nehemiah has already prayed for days, possibly weeks by this point. We saw that back in chapter 1, verse 4, that he's praying for days at least, if not for weeks. Now, when God opens up the opportunity for him to kind of express and act upon, hey, I feel a calling to go back to my homeland and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, but I also know that I have a job here, and then I'm kind of, you know, pretty stuck here unless the king would release me. He feels this tension of these different calls and responsibilities of life. Have you ever been there? And so what he does, he has this pattern of prayer, but when opportunity came up in this crucial moment, when he kind of needs to respond in a very quick time, he can't just, I mean, I don't know that he's allowed to come back and say, King, good question, I'll get back with you tomorrow. The opportunity had been open, the door had been open right there, and he prayed quickly. wasn't the first time that he prayed. But he was able to respond. Now, here, here's the principle that I believe that we begin to see. Is Nehemiah's prayer in verse 4 of chapter 2 a desperate prayer? I would think that it would at least side toward desperation. Kind of the crucial moment. So I think there's an amount of desperation there. I, I would probably say yes in the fact that he doesn't know how the king is going to respond. He doesn't know if he's going to be fired or killed or anything like that. But know this, this is not the first time that he prays. And so even though it's a desperate moment, maybe that's a better description than a desperate prayer. Could there be something different, a prayer in a desperate moment, than a desperate prayer? What would make the difference? And I think that it's if you had a pattern of prayer before. Are you tracking with that? Are you following that? And we have to be careful. This is where I want to be theologically true. Please hear my heart. Does God hear desperate prayers if you've never prayed before? Yes. Because he's kind and he's good and he's gracious. And yet, is there a principle of prayer? Is there a principle and a fruit of prayer that when we have a pattern of prayer, when we find ourselves in desperate situations, that that God blesses Past prayers. I'm walking a fine line there because I never want you to think that somehow God is dependent on our goodness whatsoever to show his grace and his mercy. No, the very definition of grace is that we're not deserving of it. And so his mercy and his grace is not dependent on our goodness. But is there a principle that when we have prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed, And then opportunity opens up and we don't have time to go off and pray for two more days. And in that desperate moment, desperate moment, God, give me wisdom, give me discernment, give me the right answer. Do you think that there's some fruit of having days or weeks of prayer? Can we build that case biblically? I think we can. I I never want to lead you down a road of works, guys. I've shared with you what my mama said. She's my stepmom, and anytime you hear me talk about my, my mother, it's my stepmother who was a, a kind and generous mother to me. And after my dad passed, uh, 
my mom's Catholic, and she said, we just didn't pray enough. And it hurt my heart, because kind of in that mentality that she had, and she'd been trained in, is, okay, if I would have just said one more Hail Mary, if I would have said just one more of this, or if I'd just done a little bit more, that somehow this would have kind of moved it over from no, 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 and then all of a sudden God got to yes. And it's a dangerous place to be theologically, guys. There's many, many times in the Bible when God answered desperate prayers to people who had never, ever prayed before. And it's his grace and his mercy that is the kindness. So would we take that and say, well, then just when I get in desperate moments, I'll just wait then to pray. Go call up State Farm Insurance tomorrow and, and see if they will give you insurance after you find out that you have this, that, you know, I wrecked my car today. Can I buy some car insurance? Can you kind of go back one day? Now, again, I'm not saying that God acts on the principles of State Farm Insurance. I'm just, but do you see that? Is there, a, is, there, is there fruit of having a pattern of prayer in our life? And I think the Bible says yes. And I think this is one of the examples. That when he's called us to pray, not that we're twisting God, and God was saying, okay, you prayed 999 prayers. If it would have been a thousands, I would have done that. No, it has nothing to do with that. It has everything about what the purpose of prayer is. Is the purpose of prayer to change God's heart or to change my heart? purpose of prayer is that he's allowed me into the throne room so that he can transform my mind and my thinking and my heart so that my fears and my insecurities and my all those can be resting in his faithfulness his mercy and his grace and his sovereignty that will change our prayer life right there guys when we begin to realize that we're not trying to change God's mind but, but that God is sovereign and what he's using prayer for is to, to give us more and more of a confidence in that sovereignty. Peace in the midst of storm. Peace in the midst of desperate times. Hey, what's the right answer to give the king? He just asked me, well, what could he do for me? If I answer this wrong, he, he could kill me, he could fire me. Or maybe he could say something that was agreeable. What happens? Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 5. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, if your servant has found favor in your sight, is he buttering him up or is that just wise or do you think that's discernment and wisdom there? I mean, there's some people that would say, man, that's just buttering up the king. I, I think because of prayerful, realizing the whole situation because he's been in days, if not weeks of prayer, fasting, that he's been preparing his heart and his mind. He comes off and he says some really wise and, and really poignant things here. If it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I might rebuild it. You know, here, you ask what you could do. Could you give me some time off so that I can go back home and, and help build? So here's more questions. Let me ask you. Was Nehemiah's prayer and his request bold? Ah. Was Nehemiah's request respectful? Does Nehemiah seem to, to have the fruit of praying and thinking through and his mind and heart being trained by God through this prayerful time together? 
because he has prayed about this already. Does this seem to be kind of the fruit that he would react in such a mind and a spirit and, and that he would kind of have the words to say? See, I link that together because God owes him no, because God is good and gracious. And somehow with these spiritual disciplines, for example, Bible reading, do you increase in your Christianity and you become more of a Christian because you read the Bible? But is there a spiritual discipline of, of being in the word of God so that it can train your mind and do the whole process of transformation? Do, do you begin to see this, guys? And how that's different from works and putting our faith in works whatsoever? No, it's this calling that we were never saved because of our works. Not even a future version of ourselves. God didn't say, you know, give me that Bobby and in about 38 years I can maybe shape him into something that's somewhat useful. No, in all of my depravity, Romans 5, 8, but while we were yet still sinners, Christ died for us. Before the foundation of the world, a predetermined love that he chose me. Let's never confuse our works in any way of being accepting to, to this God who is so holy. At the same time, the Bible does call us into these spiritual disciplines. And is there fruit from being in the Word in a regular basis? Is there fruit in your life? Do you think differently? Does it help transform you? When you when you have a prayer life and you're praying about things, does it help transform you? And that's the principle that I begin to see here. Now look at the result of Nehemiah's question to the king. Bold prayer in a desperate situation. But he has a prepared heart. Why? Because he's been praying and fasting and, and, and he's probably thought through some of this. And Nehemiah 2.6 And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will we be gone and, and when will we return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. We're not given that time. He doesn't say oh, about a year, six months, three weeks. He, he doesn't give a time. But supposedly he gave the king the time. It pleased the king. Now, look at what happens next, verse 7 and 8. Nehemiah gets his answer. Okay, I'll give you some time off. And look what happens, verse 7 and 8. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me to the governors of the province beyond the river. That I, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. Where I am right now, there's a couple other countries, there's a couple other provinces, some other peoples between me and where I have to go to Jerusalem. Will you give me some letters that will say that I am, and under your authority, traveling through? And a letter of Asaph, and the keeper, um, uh, and a letter to Asaph, um, the keeper of the king's force, that, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall ocu- occupy. And is that bold? <coughs> it's one thing to ask, can I have some time off? And you don't know how the king's going to react. The king says, yeah, you can have some time off. Okay, king, while you're doing that, and maybe you're filing the work, the papers, you know, to, for my temporary release, can you also get some people to do some official documents 
so that I can have safe passage through these other places? And can you tell the guy who's in charge of all the wood, knowing wood prices these days, God, can, can you still, can you give me some wood too? Bold? Has he gone from, I don't know that I'm even going to survive this question, to a point of boldness? Is it because Nehemiah is just a bold, rude man? Or do you think because of prayer, God has prepared his heart and his mind and given him a boldness in this situation that is not his own? See, to me, that's the fruit of a prayer life, guys. It makes us bold when we wouldn't be bold on our own. It it allows us to be respectful when maybe in our heart, originally, we didn't want to be respectful. What does the king say? Last part of verse 8. And the king granted me what I asked for, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Do you see what just happened there? God gives Nehemiah boldness, not just to ask for the leave time, but some expensive building supplies. And what does the king say? Yes. I mean, isn't that amazing? It, it reminds me of, of what Paul, the Apostle Paul, when he was writing to the Ephesians, <coughs> in Ephesians chapter 3, there's a verse that maybe you're familiar with. I love this verse. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. Do you like that verse? Have you lived that verse? Have you experienced that verse? Isn't that kind of amazing? I mean, I, I, could, I could imagine that we could stop right now and say, man, just, does somebody have a testimony? We're not. We're going to finish this. But I can imagine that there'd be somebody who said, man, you're talking about exceedingly abundantly? Let me tell you this story of God's faithfulness, of his graciousness, maybe in a time that was very desperate. But do you notice something about that verse at the very end? What's at the very end of that verse? A comma. Paul hasn't finished his thinking here. Remember, always look at scripture in context. And so what does verse 21 say? Since there's a comma there, what's the rest of this verse? Let me go back and read verse 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. Verse 21. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all the generations forever and ever. Amen. Why does God do exceedingly and abundantly? For his own glory, guys. For his own glory. I mean, we get the blessings of it. God does it exceedingly abundantly in your life. You get the blessings of it. But he does it. The motivation there is his own glory. And that's what Nehemiah realized. Look again at the last part of verse 8. And the king granted me what I asked. For the good hand of my God was upon me. Nehemiah realized that this answer was not just because he was a persuasive speaker. Hey, I'm glad I took that class about how to, you know, get what you want. It wasn't because, you know, I'm just a faithful guy. 
he realized that all of this was part of what God suddenly had ordained. And in this calling of Nehemiah to go help rebuild this wall, that, that, that he was very much that God was already preparing a way. Why? For the blessing, for graciousness and, and mercy. But the bottom line is for God's own glory. And certainly God can show his glory without us, but in his love and his grace and his mercy, he involves us. So let's try to summarize this and apply this passage. Are we saying that God doesn't answer desperate prayers? A little bit. Confirm in my heart that I have not been heretical this morning. Okay? Are we saying that God does not answer desperate prayers? No. Let's go through all kinds of different things. Even the confession, whether it was a prayer or not, the thief on the cross. I can go story after story after story, incident after incidents of God's faithfulness and his kindness to desperate people who did not have weeks and months of fasting and prayer and God in his grace and mercy answered their their desperate plea. Why? Because God is such a good and gracious God and for his own glory. So have we answered that one sufficiently? But could there be a principle of prayer here in this passage that we would be blessed to know and to apply to our lives. It seems like Nehemiah's previous prayers prepared his heart and his mind for a situation and an opportunity. Did Nehemiah prompt this to happen that day? Go back and read. Nah. The king says, hey, Nehemiah, what's up? I've been noticing for a while that you're just not, you don't have pep in your step or you don't have this. What, what? I notice this isn't just that you're laying down on the job. I notice this is a sorrow in your heart. Nehemiah didn't prompt that. He didn't say Tuesday, February 22nd. I'm going to go talk to the king. We'll look at more of that next week in Proverbs when it says that many are the plans of man, but it's God who blesses and ordains the steps. No, in, in this moment, this desperate moment, he had a heart that was prepared by prayer, a mind that was prepared by prayer. And, and then when it came about, God gave him a boldness to make a request to the king. And it wasn't in this, oh, I deserve this. I've been a faithful worker for you. But in a God is calling me to do this kind of way. Why? Because where did he get this... I really know that God has called me to do this in his time of prayer. I think that's where his mind and his heart was convinced more and more this is what God was calling him to do. And I believe that's why we see the result of God working in Nehemiah's life through this time of prayer with God. Perhaps we could say it this way as we conclude this morning. A desperate situation drove Nehemiah to, to pray a desperate prayer. Remember back there, chapter 2? The king asked him, what's the matter? And he said that he prayed. And we think it was a pretty spontaneous prayer. And in that time of prayer before, God had prepared his mind and his heart so that in that very desperate moment, when the king kind of confronted him, he had wisdom, he was respectful, and he trusted God with the outcome. Does God answer desperate prayers? Is there a spiritual discipline, a principle that we can 
learn here that there's profit of me spending time before a holy God and the things that bring sorrow and, and care and concern to my heart so that he can prepare me for opportunity that may be a day away, a week away, a month away. Parents, not to exclude everybody else, but parents. <coughs> Excuse me. And we're not talking about that this was a daily thing and maybe you missed a day back in 19, you know, so-and-so. Is there profit for praying for your kids on a regular basis? Do you think that praying for your kids on a regular basis and God molding your heart and your mind to trust in his sovereignty will prepare you for a desperate moment that comes up in the life of your child? Do you see the principle at work there? That as I'm praying on a regular basis for my children, I'm not trying to get to prayer number a thousand so I can twist God's arm. No, I'm learning of him. God, you know my child's name. You formed my child in the womb of my wife. You, before the foundation of the world, have a plan for my child's life. And when we begin to understand that and, and God begins to free us, so we still love our care. We're still tempted to plan out every single moment and put pillows around them as they go through this very violent world. And yet as we would pray before a sovereign God, what do we get more and more and more of? A biblical mindset of parenthood. Does that make sense? And then desperate moment comes up. And it's the school principal or it's the local police officer. I'm not saying that he doesn't answer that prayer if you've never prayed for your child before. He's a kind and gracious. I'm just saying your heart is prepared. Why? Because you know more about him. And he's He's taught you more about himself. Does that make sense? Application here. The more and more and more that I find a pattern of prayer in my life, the more and more I do think that when desperate moments come, God will give grace and ability in a way that I can respond in a more God-like way. Because he's transformed my heart and my mind. It's nothing to do with Bobby. It has everything to do about God training me in, the, in his word and the beauty and his strength and his sovereignty. Let me encourage you, not just if you're parents. Let me encourage you. I think we can study here that there is great profit of having a pattern of prayer in our lives. And that when God begins to bring sorrow to our hearts and breaks us, we'll find ourselves very much like Nehemiah. What was his prayer two weeks ago, chapter one? Confession. Amen. God, I'm a sinful man, he said. And I live among a sinful and rebellious people. But you're a covenant-keeping God. He came back and he told the truth about man and he told the truth about his God. And if there's a clarity that we need in the, mem- in, in the midst of desperate moments in our lives, I need a truth about myself and I need a truth about my God. 
And I get that from the Word of God. I get that from prayer and spending time with them. Not to achieve, not to earn something, not to deserve something, but it's the fruit of drawing near and practicing some of the disciplines that he's asked us to do. Does that make sense? I don't want to get another... And please, please confront me. Please come ask me if you have disagreement in what we've discussed today. I I promise you I will be respectful and and hear you out. And I want to know because that's how we learn and we grow together. At the same time, guys, I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you in, in following hard after God. Because I don't know when we're going to get that phone call. And at that moment, when I have to throw that quick prayer, God, help me, give me the words to say. Not that I deserve it because I've already been praying about it for two months or three months before. I just think I'm going to respond a little bit smarter and a little bit wiser and a little bit more disciplined, a little bit more godly. And It'll be a lot less Bobby and a lot more the Holy Spirit of God. The fruit of a prayer life. Let's pray together this morning. Father God, we love you and we thank you. <coughs> and Father, I, I thank you that your mercy and grace does not depend upon my efforts and my work. Father, that would be the very opposite of the, the very meaning of grace and mercy. And yet, Father, I believe with all my heart that there was fruit from you breaking Nehemiah's heart. I think there was fruit that he came and he was sorrowful and broken before you. I think there was fruit, Father, in this response in chapter 2 from the prayers that he prayed that are reflected in chapter 1, Father, that you broke his heart. And yet, Father, as you reminded him of his own sinfulness, Father, you reminded him of your grace and your mercy and your faithfulness and your sovereignty so that when that moment in time came, Father, And the king said, what can I do for you? That he spoke with godly wisdom and discernment. Let us be those kind of people. Father, that we would reflect your grace and your mercy. And your wisdom and your discernment. So that when desperate times come. And Father, we throw up that prayer and say, just give me the words to say, Jesus. Just give me the words to say. Give me the the mind and the heart to not speak of the flesh and not speak of my own selfishness and my own pride. Let me speak your words. That, Father, that there would be a fruit of you breaking and molding our hearts. Like we see that, that pot in Jeremiah 18 when you're molding that clay, working out impurities and making us into the the very masterpiece that you've called us to be. Help us to learn this discipline, Father, this day as we pray all these things in the hope that is Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.